this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 48, Closing Thoughts on an Eventful Nash Summer. This conversation continues the discussion about the benefits of creating more H&E slides from a single biopsy sample. At the tail end, Stephen digresses into a prediction about one of his favorite topics, University of Mississippi Rebels football. Unfortunately, you'll be hearing this after the game, so you don't know how Stephen would suggest you bet on it. But listen for Louise Campbell's insights earlier in the conversation on how we should think about patients who undergo biopsy. This episode is full of both laughter and ideas that will challenge you. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Roger Green. Louise, do you have anything you want to add right now before we... uh... Stephen Harrison. Louise always has very insightful comments. Louise Campbell. Well, no pressure. She was a superstar last week, Stephen. She's not going to top that for love or money. Go ahead. (laughs) No, to be fair, the only thing that I was thinking, I'm not going to be the expert on the science or anything like that, but when you talk about side effects, when you talk about short-term duration treatments, when we look at the examples we've got from hepatitis C treatment, if you performed the real-world care as a trial was performed with the level of input into patients that clinical nurses give or research nurses give, then they get through the treatment. For effexofermin, it's looking like a very good drug, but it does come with some side effects. It doesn't come with gastro. It is subcut. It's about now planning and using it in the next trials, how you're going to implement the care. Because the more accurate that we get the real care in post-trial settings, if they're approved, the more results that we get that match clinical studies. Because very few real-world evidence matches the quality that you get in a trial. When we're talking about drugs that are going to be this expensive and there's going to be hurdles to get to them, we owe it to the patient population to make sure we've got the best support in there that we can give. And a trial is a very good place to find the best support that patients need. So getting that feedback from them of what worked, what didn't work, what would be beneficial going forward, start planning now. So that was the main thing that I was thinking about when Stephen and Mazen were talking about the effects of Thurman. I think that's fantastic. And let me just, before we kick it back to you guys, because I love that question, are the statistics embedded in the trial whereby if you use different kinds of interventions, you could figure out what was actually, I mean, in terms of to, to enhance patient support and compliance, you could figure out what was actually working and what wasn't? Or would you have to go run separate exercises to get at that, apropos of Louise's question? You do so many things to manage a patient in a trial that you wouldn't do in real world. It turned out that two or three of them were particularly helpful in the real world, maybe that you could do something about. Just a thought question. Go ahead. Back to you guys. I mean, this is the age-old question, right? Trials are very controlled, generally speaking. I mean, you want to control the narrative as much as you can. So when you take this out of a study and you put it in real world, you have to expect there to be a bell-shaped curve. Those people that respond as equally as they would in a clinical trial and some won't respond as well. And and now you're bringing in the complexity of real-life issues and challenges. And the other thing that we can't forget get about is the prescribing provider. You know, if they just see a patient in clinic and just say, yeah, you have fatty liver, I'm going to prescribe you this drug, take it, see how you do on it. Versus, hey, Louise, you have NASH, that's a serious problem. Let me tell you what happens if we leave it untreated. Based on our NITs, you look like you have advanced disease. I'm going to hit you with a drug I think will quiet this down very quickly, but it does carry some side effects with it and you just have to be careful. We may even have to give you something to help you with the side effects. 
text, but you should respond well to it. And we're not going to keep you on it forever if you're not responding, but we do want to see how this works. And with any medicine I, I have prescribed in my career, the more that I set the expectations, the more that I have a discussion with the patient about why I need them to take it and the reason I want them to take it, even if there's some adverse events associated with it, that's expectation management. And I've said this all along, heart transformation leads to behavioral modification. If you tell them and convince them that what you're doing is the right thing, they will go to the wall to make sure they take that medicine. Hepatitis C therapy in the era of pegylated interferon and ribavirin spoke to that. And then following bisepravir and telopavir, I mean, look, if you could get a patient to take a year of bisepravir, you, you are a good man because uh, that was a challenging round of medicine to take. So our patients will do what we ask them to do because they're concerned about their health. But you have to be concerned about their health if they're going to stick with a medicine that has some adverse events associated with it. So I think part of it is just how that discussion takes place with the provider and the patient. Mason, what do you think? I agree. I mean, I don't want to compare these drugs to the hepatitis C medications with pig interferon ribavirin. Uh, I can tell you, I do remember that when I was a fellow at the NIH, we did a study on non-responders that we gave double the dose of ribavirin. And you can imagine how is that like. God, we're not back to these days, luckily. FGF like let's talk about side effects of such a drug and let's compare it to GLP-1s. GLP-1 is a good drug but they do have side effects and they are GI side effects. The overall they have shown to protect the heart, you lose weight, prevent diabetes or reverse diabetes. I'm talking about GLP-1s here. So unfortunately we're dealing with GI side effects with multiple class of drugs. So you're right Luis, we have to prepare the patients for it. The GI docs have dealt with preparing patients from previous experience with the hepatitis C, it's going to be less a task with the NASH drugs and they're prepared for it, but we have to do it as you said. But I like that part of you, which is the future thinking that you are already started preparing for. All about the future. They're coming. <laughs> That's what Paul Revere said too. Yeah, he, he also said one if by land and two if by sea. So what's the metaphor for that one here? One if by jet ski and two if in, if, and two if in Park City? I mean, where do we go with this one? One if by biopsy, two if by MR elastography. Oh, actually, I go none if by, you know, forget about biopsy. Let's find two other options. But I like that. I like that approach. I am just going to comment on Stephen's thing on the biopsy. We've said previously on the podcast that these samples that patients donate are valuable and we should respect the tissue that they have given. And if we have to take more cuts to get the best diagnosis out of the tissue that that patient has been kind enough to donate to help help forward science, then we just need more slides. We're not going in again. We're not doing, but we have an onus to get the best information out of the best resource that that person has donated to us as a for research and to participate. So we do have to get the most valuable information out of it and protect the validity of that patient's sample donation. So can I ask what the historic logic is behind only doing one slide per patient? I guess we've been trying to figure out what we need to do and not what we need to do. And there's labor intensive work and cost and so many pathologists and so many hours of the day all of the above. Historically, we've had to ship glass slots. 
We've had to put them in containers and be very careful with them. We had to have very tight chain of custody. And so we wanted to get by with the minimum we needed to make the diagnosis. So one H&E and one trichrome. But that's why I said dogma at the beginning, because, you know, the old adage dogma is you fill in your adjective to describe that. And I've been doing this for 20 years. Maybe people that have been doing it longer than me have a better answer, but I have no real answer as to why we have not looked at more than one H&E prior to now. And the only thing I can come up with is a cost issue relative to shipping glass and chain of custody for that. Now in the era of digital slides, we stain them, scan them, and look at them and render an opinion. Uh, I spoke to Dave Kleiner about this Well, we had an interactive discussion about this on a Zoom meeting a couple months ago. These pathologists can look at an entire set of slides and render an opinion in in a matter of a couple minutes at worst. I mean, they're very quick at looking at an H&E and looking at a trichrome and rendering an opinion. Adding a couple extra H&Es, to me, it's just looking at a bigger landscape. I mean, you can look at any different types of analogies, but if you're looking at a Van Gogh painting and then you have to hone in on one little corner of the painting, but yet tell you what that painting was, at best you could probably say is this this is work that looks like something Van Gogh would do, but I can't pick out the whole picture based on one little bitty piece of it. So the more of the picture I'm able to look at, the more accurate I'm going to be at telling you what Van Gogh painted and what picture that was. Same thing for the liver, same thing for anything. And if you're sitting on a block of tissue, why not cut a few extra slides, stain it, and give you a better picture of what's happening? And the pushback from some people is going to be, well, which slide do you take? Which one do you analyze? And I said, you analyze them all. And then you take the the largest percentage of liver fat, the highest grade of inflammation, the highest ballooning grade for the collective three slides. And then at the end of the treatment, you do the same thing again. And that's how we're going to minimize variability. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, we're going to reduce placebo response rates. Mark my words, if this is done this way, we will reduce placebo response rate. I do agree. And maybe the next study design, it should be done that way. And you look at this cleaning failure rate, and that's the next study in particular. But I also think the, the very first slide, some people do local reading because some sponsors, they don't give you a reading and it becomes a problem with the patient. So that first slide also that goes to your local pathologist, it's probably your best cut. Maybe that one should also go to the central pathologist and compare the reading, which should be very important. And I think, honestly, that is the best cut usually. So one of these three should be the central, uh, the first slide that went to your local pathologist, no matter what what's the policy of the center, because that will be very important. This is a new subject for me, kind of. But what I'm hearing you guys say is that we can improve screen fail rates and reduce placebo response all at the same time if we take a broader view of each individual patient. Is that kind of where we're going here? Hypothetically, at least? That would be the goal, ideally. Again, I've always said this. Sometimes it's little changes that lead to big outcome differences. We don't have to go invent the next Google or Facebook or Amazon 
to have a quantifiable seismic change in the way that we do drug development in NASH. Maybe this is it, maybe it's not it, but let's give it a try. This The biopsy is already done. What's the risk in, in taking a couple extra stain slides and looking at it? particularly now that we're doing them digitally? So, Stephen, that was a great hijack. Thank you for that. Hey, you know, I'm an Old Miss rebel, right? So we have to do things different. By the way, when you're listening to this, Old Miss will be heading into Alabama's stadium and you're hearing it here first. Ole Miss will take down number one Alabama this weekend. So what is the point spread on the game or the over-under so people who do something like that know how to bet it? Point spread right now, it's at 15. So it's Alabama minus 15. The over-under is right at 80. Yeah. So you heard it from Steven. Take the point spread. You have, you have a way to go on the over-under? So nobody can stop Ole Miss's offense and our defense is better. We've averaged 52 points a game. I suspect we score at least 40. We put 48 up on them last year. We have a better offense. So we'll do at least 40. I suspect they score 30 and it's a 70 points. So I'd go under on the over-under and I would definitely take the 14 and 15 points or whatever it is and bet big on Ole Miss. And don't come, don't come whining to me if it doesn't work out, but I'm just telling you right now. This is my prediction. So Dr. Harris will be back next week and we might do a live audience for the occasion so people can either praise or the opposite of praise him depending upon how their bets go. I think we're at close to an hour. So I want to start to wrap this up. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, October 6th, hopefully discussing the new clinical care pathways published today in gastroenterology. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 